0: blue wire hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the rebuild i'm henry ettinger and i am very very excited to welcome on our next guest on the show mike renner pff draft analyst mike how are you doing
1: I'm doing great, just like I said to you before here. Very excited for it to be the offseason. Very excited that the draft has come and gone.
0: Finally catching up on some sleep, I hope.
1: Yes, my God. Thank Thank Lord.
0: Yeah, it is definitely a a crazy few days, I'm sure, for you around the draft. It was electric uh, in in Cleveland this year. And and Browns fans are your biggest fan right now, Mike, (laughs) because for two years in a row, PFF has loved the Browns draft. Of course, they are an analytics-focused front office with Andrew Berry and company. But I think there was a lot of, of excitement uh, around this Browns draft this year as well. And so I'd love to just jump into it with you to, to kick things off here. Day one came around, and, and the Browns' biggest need seemed like it was going to be outside corner. They had signed Davion Clowney and, and taken care of the edge piece a, a little bit. And there was some skepticism on the Brown side of things that that Greg Newsome or another uh, of these top corners wasn't going to be available for them at at 26. However, some teams traded up the Bears that might have needed uh, a corner. The Colts ended up going defensive end. And and then Greg Newsome ends up falling to the Browns. Where did you have Greg Newsome slotted among those those top corners?
1: So he was third on our cornerback board it was pastor tan then jc horn and then greg Newsom, but they were all very close on the pff draft board I, I did not see it as this massive gap between those top two and Newsom. how it ended up actually playing out in the draft where i think it was eight nine then 17 picks later you saw a cornerback come off the board I, I saw the massive gap between 26 there and then 29 where the Packers ended up going Eric Stokes like that to me was the massive gap was between those top three. And I even throw actually Asante Samuel Jr. into that mix, even though he was kind of a different dude. Uh, and then I, Caleb Farley as well. But he obviously had the injury risk that some teams probably weren't even going to draft him. Were he to fall there? So it was those three and then a massive drop off if you want another outside type of cornerback. And for them to get one of those top three and to do it at pick twenty six, man, that was a fantastic sort of serendipitous pick for the Cleveland Browns.
0: When you take a look at Newsome, I watched a lot of him at Northwestern. I love his game as far as I think he is both a, a press man and zone corner. I, you know, there are certainly a lot of numbers that that like him as well. You said it was all very close there. Was there any particular area where he stood out or, or perhaps was, was behind those other top guys that you mentioned?
1: I think where he's behind is experience, like you see those other guys playing press man at the line of scrimmage against the you know, SEC wide receivers. Mm-hmm. And so they've done it. They've done what they were going to be doing in the NFL at the highest level of competition. Newsom, I mean, you saw him play against Ohio state, but he gets hurt halfway through this past year. And then obviously Chris Olave is not even playing in that game uh, in the big 12, cha- big 10 championship game where it's like you saw him go up against guys from Illinois. You, know, Iowa. you saw him go up against wide receivers that aren't going to be playing the league, aren't top class wide receivers. And yeah, shut them down. But there's a big difference there between shutting down guys who won't sniff the NFL and guys who will. And so that's kind of that was the gap to me because in terms of how he played. Uh, how smooth he is, like the recovery speed, all the other sort of tools for the position he's got. And so it really was just if we got to see a full non-COVID impacted schedule from this guy this past year, the gap would not have been that big in my eyes.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I thought part of what was so appealing about another Northwestern prospect in Rashawn Slater is he faced a lot of NFL competition two years ago uh, on the other side of the ball for Northwestern. But you mentioned it; I mean, that marquee game versus Ohio State, where you know, which was brought up, of course, a lot in the Justin Fields mm-hmm. conversation because Northwestern shut them down a lot. Well, part of that was a lot of their best players weren't playing, especially at the receiver position. So that's certainly uh makes a lot of sense. There just wasn't, it, there weren't the, those type of players in, in the Big Ten this last season, and, and Newsom's dealt with injuries as well. So unfortunately, there there are some less games to go off of there. Uh, somebody uh, that had uh, not injury problems in college, but some health concerns uh, that that popped up in the draft is JOK Jeremiah Usakormoa for the Browns. Uh, we. I have talked at length about him on this podcast as somebody that that was viewed a lot higher uh, in terms of draft boards, but ultimately he fell to the Browns in round two. How do you square the the ranking of him on, on your draft board with those potential other concerns?
1: It's one of those, as an outsider, is complete unknowns. And even, honestly, as an insider, a lot of times. Like, doctors can't predict the future. It gets flagged for that reason. You get taken off the board because it is a risk. And some guys, it's a risk that never comes to fruition. Some guys, become the NFL, they never, may never play a snap. So that's kind of the uh, scary thing, I guess, with those red flags. But apparently, it even got cleared prior to the draft, or got, I guess got cleared the weekend of the draft, that it wasn't even a – an issue it was literally just uh something that might have been but actually wasn't so i that's what i guess at pick 52 it's about time to take that risk when a guy's that talented when he's a top 20 player on the pff draft board that's when it's like hey yeah maybe he might have issues down the line but the other guys we're looking at aren't going to be starters this guy could be a day one impact type of player to get him where they got him and then to get that clean bill of health so where there are no health issues for him is kind of ridiculous uh, easily one of the steals of the draft.
0: That that seems to be the consensus that it was a steal in the draft. And, and certainly, look, the Browns were mocked at taking him, you know, number 26. Mm-hmm. So it, to get him, you know, in the second round, it obviously seems like it's tremendous value. And you mentioned he was top 20 on the PFF board of things. Something that I, I think it will be curious uh, about JOK is where he ends up playing for the Browns. He played all over the place at Notre Dame, Uh, you know, mostly a linebacker, but a lot backpedaling in in coverage as well. When the board stacks up, how do you try to take into account that when you don't know what position they're necessarily going to translate to at the NFL level and that, you know, the positional value there, because yeah, as uh, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast are aware of the value of linebackers seems to be going down in terms of the NFL perception at this point.
1: Yeah, see, I, I thought that got a little overblown, the positional stuff with him. Now, maybe right away, it, it's going to be a transition. Like, he he didn't play inside linebacker. He didn't play between the tackles much. He was more of a slot cornerback than he was a linebacker. But, like, NFL today, you don't have to be 235 pounds to play between the tackles. you got Darius Leonard playing at 215. You got guys transitioning from safety to linebacker, and they obviously haven't, uh, you know, ever played linebacker in their lives. you Buchanan, it's a regular transition that's occurring. To me, all the things that he would be theoretically asked to do between the tackles, like he's shown, it's just going to be a maybe a bit of a transition right away. But it's not that he's incapable of them; he just never is asked to do them. So, uh, I thought that stuff was a little overblown, especially when you're the athlete that JOK is and as explosive as he is and like he came in 221 like 221 is there's a lot of guys around the league playing mm-hmm. linebacker 221 it's not like this is a completely unprecedented situation here with him.
0: yeah and it, it goes both ways right you know if he you know is asked to do a, you know a lot of things that a heavier linebacker would do in the run game sure I, I don't think that would necessarily be the best fit for him but I also don't think that's you know, what makes him so valuable. The, the fact that he's running downfield with Clemson receivers, with Alabama receivers, the fact that he could be part of these lighter packages that the Browns love to run to me makes him such an appealing prospect and a great fit in Cleveland.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously not going to be a Mike linebacker, but like every, every defense still has a weak side linebacker. Every defense has that uh, guy who's not going to be asked to take on the fullback in the hole. That's more the one who's kept free with some space. So I think he can play that role from day one. Like, I think that's what Anthony Walker was going to be for them. Like he's not that type, he's not a takeout type of linebacker either. Like he's on the smaller side for the position, too.
0: Yeah. And so I, I I'm very excited to see how, how they're going to line up J O K in this defensive scheme. I, I think they can use him in a bunch of different ways and frankly make up for a lot of flaws that existed on this defense last year. And somebody else that has some pretty significant strengths is Anthony. Anthony Schwartz, uh, the Browns third round receiver. This was the pick I was the lowest on. So, uh, you know, in my own personal grading of the Browns draft, I gave them an A minus just because I was like, I I was interested in receivers in the draft, but I was hoping they were going to go after somebody that might be a long term replacement for Odell Beckham Jr. And or Jarvis Landry. Those guys are getting up there in age. We all know that, you know, the roster situation with Odell Beckham, Junior, He might not be long for this team at, at this point. And instead, they go with Anthony Schwartz, a guy who, to me, it doesn't necessarily check those boxes. He's more of a great gadget-type player, jet sweep, all of those things. But BFF, yeah, as far as his draft profile, seemed pretty high on him. And so, you know, do you disagree with me there uh, about the value of Anthony Schwartz in the third round?
1: To me, he's... As good a prospect as guys like 2 2 at well, Dwayne Eskridge went in second. And you're at the position also, the back end of the third, you're not the chance of hitting on like a starter, starter quality guy, very low. It just, you don't have a lot of options at that point. You know, maybe offensive line is the only place, is one of the places you can still find starters. And that's, they got, they got one of the best offensive line. Like they, they don't need necessarily an offensive lineman. So, you get a guy who can still fill a role for you then at that point like yes he's not gonna ever be a complete wide receiver but he's not even 21 years old yet and he's the fastest player probably in the NFL from day one that that you can work with that in today's NFL like their offenses are taking advantage of speed better than ever and so yeah there's a lot of development to be had but some of the things he's lacking can be taught you can't teach 10 flat 100 meter speed like so what he's going to bring to the table is something that they obviously did not have. And that quite frankly, no one really has uh from day one.
0: Yeah. And, and that's why I said, Hey, if I'm wrong about this pick, which I, I'm not you, I don't do this for a living. I check out a lot of the players that are rumored to the Browns on day one and two kind of ahead of the draft. Uh, Anthony Schwartz, wasn't even one of those guys. So I was like, Hey, if I'm wrong on this, I'm going to be very wrong because the guy's going to put up highlights. He's got blazing speed. You mentioned it. I mean, he's got like, 10-second flat 100-meter dash times out, out there. He's basically an Olympic-quality runner as far as that's concerned. And so he does d- certainly bring a different element as far as the speed is concerned. And this Browns offense didn't really have that element last year. And so you saw them try to address that in, in the draft, uh, you know, with him, with Demetrius Felton out of LSU or uh, UCLA, excuse me, a little bit as well. So they that was clearly an emphasis for them, I think, uh, as they got later on in this draft.
1: Yeah, and like I said, they they were kind of I don't want to say holeless, but like you're at a complete roster at that point. You were getting backups pretty much at the end of the third round after you addressed Newsom and Jeremiah Usacoramoa. So if you're going to get a backup, at least this guy can see the field in a role. Whereas you know James Hudson's not going to see the field in a role from day one. Like there's other guys, if positions you would have went, just wouldn't see the field. So getting a guy like Schwartz at least has a role on this roster.
0: Yeah, I I think he will at least certainly get an opportunity. You know, ten to fifteen snaps, maybe to start. We'll see. Uh, he's got a lot of competition at that that position in the short term, but maybe not in the long term. So it, there there could be opportunity for aggressive expansion as well. So uh, in the future here, the the last guy I really wanted to touch on with you, Mike, was Tommy Togiai, Uh because PFF. Uh, you know, seemed very high on the I pick, much more so than the consensus. And so I thought that was really interesting. Uh, in your guys' grade of the Browns draft, you called it highway robbery, getting i in, in the fourth yeah. round. So what about him made you guys so high on that pick, as opposed to where it seemed like everybody else was kind of like a solid pick for the Browns, but but nothing crazy?
1: I mean, Togiai, we just didn't get to see enough of them, as I think why people aren't. As high, like he didn't become a starter until his past year, and then obviously Ohio State had such a limited schedule. I think he played something like 290 snaps all season, which is you know very limited for a defensive tackle. But man, you flip on the tape against Clemson, his first step, his play strength, like he might have a limited role with kind of his body type at the next level. He might just be a three tech. I don't think you're going to play him on the nose, but man, he's so strong and quick, and like one of the best bull rushers in the class. And, and if you got a bull rush. That, that's something that can translate it gives you more options once you get to the NFL. A lot of guys peter out, especially like undersized DTs, because they can't play with, can't handle strength at the NFL level. Like Guys are quick. Guards are quick at the NFL level. You can't just beat them with agility unless you're you know, Aaron Donald. So you got to have a plan B and code guy could go right through guys. So I love the pick. True Junior coming out, which was kind of rare in this class. You didn't have a ton of underclassmen declaring mm-hmm. as opposed to other years where guys get full schedules, uh, you know, full slates outside covid so the kind of the unknown with togei is like the trajectory of his career could have been much different if he comes back to ohio state next year for his senior season and balls out again
0: yeah pff i think graded him out a like 87 and a half but over yeah, seven yeah. games as a as a starter so it's difficult you mentioned the sample size there and he doesn't exactly have the measurables. That's the only other thing I think. The the short arms, I guess, yeah, it was the a arm, concern there. the
1: arm length. because uh, like his explosive numbers were fantastic. Like his jumps and obviously forty reps on the bench were all great. Yeah, and so I. A
0: lot of Browns fans, of course, are Ohio State fans as well. So they were very excited about this pick because you mentioned it. His signature move is that bull rush. And, of course, that stands out a lot for fans because he's, you know, buries guards and centers back into the quarterback. And so they – Browns fans that are Ohio State fans certainly saw a lot of him this last year for Ohio State and were excited about that pick. But I just wanted to pick your brain on that one a little bit because you guys were were so much higher – on him than than what i saw out there across the board
1: yeah i i am curious why i haven't seen a ton. obviously i can only cu- can only sort of ingest so much other draft content myself but <laughs> i don't know exactly why so many people are low on him it was a weak dt class and to me he had one of the best one physical sort of test, testing numbers and then the on field was great for him too so
0: a, a lot of production uh, in the in those games as well and, and so just holistically, looking at this browns draft, I, I mentioned it PFF gave the browns an A plus in, in this draft and give me a sense of what goes into that grade because for two years in a row, you guys ha- have given the browns an A plus and so give the listeners a little more context. What does it mean when you're saying hey, this is an a plus level draft out of the browns?
1: So we're not grading hey how did you did you fill your needs did you address the positions that were open on your roster like no that's not how you get a good draft it's did you one hit valuable positions did you hit guys who uh can not only impact your football team but also impact your cap in terms of if that guy hits you're not having to pay him you know 20 million dollars like you would for a top flight cornerback on the free agent market so it's very attacking valuable positions and are you attacking you know are you getting a guy where you probably shouldn't have gotten them and I, I think you say that about both of their first and second round picks and, and obviously you skew to the early round picks like getting steals in the fourth and fifth from the pff draft board it's like like the 50th guy in your draft board is still probably not going to be a good player there's not 50 great players in the draft class it's no, it's did you get two sort of blue chip type of prospects and i, I thought the browns did you, know, you got two top 20 players in the pff draft board so and at positions in a coverage linebacker and obviously an outside cornerback that in our eyes are valuable positions. So I think that's, that's how you get an A-plus draft from us.
0: Those day one and day two picks, I think are what got Browns fans so excited. He, the, the the ones that we touched on at the top with Newsom and, and JOK. And, and it, you mentioned uh, positional value. And I think that was the other interesting thing about the Browns draft that I loved because when I try to look at the draft in a similar sense, uh, you know, I, because I'm not watching these guys, I'm like, okay, well, what about, I look at it from a approach and kind of philosophical standpoint, what, you know, positions did you draft and and do they make sense with, with what, you know, uh, necessarily what your roster needs, but also will need long-term. And so I look at the Browns, right. They've clearly got miles Garrett as a staple piece. So drafting a defensive tackle that you can get on a rookie deal who's going to get a lot of one-on-one one, one matchups makes a lot of sense for me drafting a tackle, you know, to me makes a ton of sense because if that guy can develop into an off, you know, a, a starter, who knows if he will, he's a fourth round guy. The odds, as you mentioned, are not great, but if he does, the value there is incredible. So it, to me, that's what really got me excited about the Browns draft is it, it just made so much sense um from a value perspective, both in the positions they drafted and then where they ended up getting these guys just because, you know, obviously, J.O.K. fell to a place where nobody thought he was going to.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the thing about that pick is the Browns, like you even got a sense or like a a little insight into their heads. An analytically driven franchise, Andrew Barry, who knows that trading up is negative EV most of the time, trades up for him. That's how highly he thought of him is that he still at that point in the draft was willing to give up multiple draft picks to get a guy uh, that – like I said, analytical, the analytically driven franchises rarely, if ever, do that. And so that's how highly they thought of them.
0: Yeah, you just look at the history. It, usually trade-ups do not go well for the team yeah. that trades up. The, the Browns didn't pay a huge price by any means, but but they they yeah. felt that strongly, as you said. I want to transition to the other teams in the AFC North, Mike, because I think that's where your expertise can really come in handy here is looking at the other teams because the schedule came out yesterday, you know, six games against the AFC North, obviously for the Browns. It's going to be a a key part of of whether or not they have success. And the Browns rivals have traditionally outdone them in the draft. There's no way around that. The Ravens, the Steelers have been great drafting teams in the past, but I thought this year – in general with the total of the offseason you know looking at it holistically was a little perhaps a change of pace for these teams and so let's start with the ravens because i think they're the team that's you know favored to win this division they are the team that i think most browns fans are most concerned about ahead of the year just because the browns fans you know see that win against the steelers last year and are feeling a lot more confident so starting with them You know, what did you think of their draft? Because, look, they drafted the guy out of Penn State with zero sacks. It was kind of a strange, you know, day one, day two for them.
1: Yeah, I truthfully liked their draft. Um, The the guys that they picked in the first round, I actually had them mocked both. uh, Bayman and Owe going into that first round. And so it's because that was where they... Like one, the need was there for both, and one I thought the value would be great for both those picks. Uh, We we had Bateman and Oway higher on the PFF draft board than where they ended up going, and and I think they won the draft, you know, quote unquote, won the draft before they even before they made a selection. Like getting what they got for Orlando Brown in a scheme there out in Baltimore that doesn't really require a top flight offensive line. When you get your pass checking for Lamar Jackson to flip a guy like that for. What we saw as an equivalent to a first round pick with Wall, the, the hall they got back was already a W. So that, that's the, the Baltimore Ravens are just a sound decision making team year in and year out. The, the surprise kind of head scratching pick to me was Brandon Stevens, the third rounder cornerback from SMU, a guy we literally didn't even have uh, scouted. <laughs> There's only so much time in the day. We didn't have any sort of, uh, I, I had not heard that guy's name prior to the draft, but. Uh, obviously a super athlete in his own right that's why he comes off the board there but yeah their their first round was i thought to me exactly what they needed heading into 2021
0: always an interesting prospect he didn't have a sack and they let matthew judon walk in, in the offseason uh you know they and Gakway is also gone from this team so how do you square the fact that that he didn't have a a sack at penn state with with him having such high value there you know is it the other numbers are just so uh you know outstanding when you look at him from an analytical standpoint that that doesn't concern you
1: yeah i mean so a a massive portion of sort of projection projecting defensive ends edge rushers the guys who are going to rush the passer there athletic profile It, it is that is the one position we've seen that yes you know, sort of production, your snap to uh you know, pass rushing prowess matters to a degree. But is the one position where you got to be a high level athlete. The high level athletes are the ones you want to draft. And I'm not sure there was ever a higher level athlete than no way. Like his pro day was an all timer for defensive ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's why he comes off the board there. And and yes, he didn't have a sack, but he wasn't completely bereft. It was more he didn't have a sack. of what he had six, seven games this past year and wasn't. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a fluke. I think he had like four and a half the year before that and wasn't even a starter. So uh, I I think always uh, his developmental tools are as good as it gets. And he's only been playing football now for four years. So five years, five years since 2016. So that's kind of, uh, this guy has a lot of untapped potential here.
0: And with Bateman, uh, uh, that's another player that the Browns, I, I think kicked around or at least fans kicked around the Browns, potentially taking in the first round, they add Bateman, and then they added Sammy Watkins in free agency. The receiving core for the Ravens was not uh, very spectacular last year. Do you, so you think they've addressed that, uh, you know, with, with the pick and with free agency?
1: I do. I think Bateman's a much different type of wide receiver than they have in that roster. He's just a solid all around route runner and big catch radius. And like, he's going to get open at every level of the field. And I think they needed that. I wouldn't be surprised if he plays the slot there with kind of how that offense operates. Um, because they just needed someone like that in that office. They, they didn't have anyone in that role. Like Miles Boykin was just a disaster in terms of <laughs> as a route right. Like that guy, he just can't separate. So, uh, and then obviously Hollywood Brown's kind of a limited dude in his own right at his size. So Bateman, a much more complete wide receiver and one of the more NFL ready wide receivers too. And that's why like, I was thinking, man, he well, if he falls past twenty five, he's going to be a steal for somebody because. You don't see maybe he's not the super high end athlete that the guys at the top of this class were, but you don't see that talented receivers that late in the first round all the time.
0: He is a prospect that I thought w- would make some sense for the Browns. I just mm. you know he they didn't necessarily need receivers like you talked about going for need really isn't the the ideal thing because you know you're typically drafting for two three years down the line. I just mentioned the fact that the reason the Browns you know could have taken a receiver is because of the long term, but. I, I am sad to see him go to a, a division rival. And the Browns will face the Ravens in a really weird schedule quirk in back-to-back games for them this year. It, it, the Browns get them and then have a bye week and then get them again. So wow. it, it is – I, I don't know if I've ever really seen that in the NFL, to be honest.
1: That's like an NBA thing. I mean, yeah, I, I, did not, I did not see that when the schedule came out. It's wild.
0: It's a, it's a really weird quirk in the middle of, of the Browns' schedule another team that Browns fans of course have their eye on is the Pittsburgh Steelers, their rival. And the Pittsburgh Steelers did something that I could not believe. They took Najee Harris in the first round of pick 24. Not only that two teams did this, Mike, two teams did this. I don't know how much more evidence we need to see about taking first round running backs. How, how do NFL teams keep doing this? Do you have an answer for me?
1: I mean you preach to the choir but I will say I think you see the kind of the downfall of the Steelers coming here in the ASC north and it's because they're not an analytically driven franchise like they they are drafting guys i mean their draft history of late outside obviously the t j Watt pick has been pretty disastrous like they they are a th- they are a pure scouting old school scouting sort of team they do not rely on a- any sort of production and analytic data to make their decisions about positional value, whatever. And that's how you draft the two lowest positional value positions on the football field in first and second round. And maybe even three, if you got their third round pick, like running back tight end guard are not, are not super high value positions in the NFL. Like you see how much they get paid across the NFL and that's where they go. One, two, three. Now they're in a unique situation that, they're kind of all in on this upcoming year and then they're toast after this like they could be a completely different team after 2021 with how many guys they have to resign mm-hmm. after this year but it's a uh i'm not sure those guys are making that big an impact right out the gate
0: i i i was beside myself when they did it as a browns fan i was frankly happy and then when the jacksonville jaguars followed it up with etn i i just i was like oh i after the Jacksonville Jaguars, and this is a side tangent, so I'll get off it. But they they got great production out of an undrafted free agent last year from the running back position, and then still spent a, a pick on a first round running back. But something else you mentioned that caught my eye actually is that tight end is the second least valuable position. Is that the what, how you guys see it from an analytical perspective?
1: So that one's a, that one's more of a difficult conversation because the guys at the high end, it's a very it's one of the more binary value positions where. Guys in the high end, and you even see this by like receiving yardage totals, like Darren Waller, Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, those guys are very valuable, actually. Those guys might be more valuable than wide receivers. But then you basically your run-of-the-mill average starting tight end in the NFL is one of the least valuable positions in the NFL. It's it just those guys don't – the difference between – there's just a lot of guys kind of like Friermuth who are not super dynamic athletically, uh, can inline block to a degree – aren't going to you know, beat linebackers one-on-one there's a lot of guys like that in the nfl and uh, so it so it's and you see it like through pay scales they're not getting paid that much either because of that so uh there's kind of a plethora of guys with that skill set that it makes it just in that at that point less valuable
0: uh, that, that certainly piques my interest because the Browns have invested uh, some at the tight end position with Austin Hooper uh, and they also tend to use multiple tight end sets a lot. And so that was, that was curious to me because I feel like tight end is becoming a more valuable position here of, of late in the NFL. But as you mentioned, the pool of guys that actually separate themselves still, still is very small on an annual basis.
1: Yeah. And, and- the Browns did it because the offense they're running requires two tight ends. And that's kind of that was the market for any quality tight end at that point. But it's it's still not like I think even saw with kind of Hooper's production last year. Was he is he worth that? Uh, it hasn't seemed like it yet.
0: It, certainly, uh, he's, he's got a long way to go. He's got a long way to go. In terms of being worth his, his contract, I would say, you know, he, he's been productive. He, he's been a solid addition. Of course, though, in a salary mm-hmm. cap league, it's all about, are you worth the dollars you're being paid as far as the percentage of that cap? Mm-hmm. And in speaking of that positional value, I, I thought the last team in the AFC North, the Bengals made an interesting decision, uh, in, in going with a receiver. They, they end up taking Jamar Chase at the top of this draft. And they, in doing so, they pass on Panay Sewell, uh, maybe Rashawn Slater, a potential offensive tackle to protect Joe Burrow. What did you make of, of that choice to go more for a weapon rather than, you know, potentially somebody that could slide in on that offensive line?
1: So this was, it really is a one-of-a-kind situation the Bengals were in. And that one, there's like no wrong answer. These guys are all elite prospects. you are kind of like, hey, we need them all. Awesome. Like, great. Like, all, like you don't get that many guys who are blue-chip dudes staring you in the face at number five overall every year. So there, it was unique because of that. But then also you have this decision where you know, Penny's still a great off-the-tackle, but you don't necessarily need an off the tackle But you have a guy in Jamar Chase who was – Joe Burrow's number one target, you know, the last time he even played, that, that Chase played football, who was as an elite, a sophomore season as, you know, college football history we've seen at the receiver position, wins a Blitnikoff, just so productive down the football field. When Joe Burrow then goes to Cincinnati last year and can't hit the broadside of a bar and has no rapport with any of his guys down the football field where it's like that match of guys, like I live in Cincinnati, the amount of people that want to go to Cincinnati is low. And Jamar Chase was one of them. So now you've got one of the guys who wants to go to Cincinnati to pair with your quarterback, who obviously, if he had his way, would have taken Jamar Chase over Penny Sewell. So I think as a Bengals franchise, you you had to go that way. It's And again, I don't think there was a wrong answer for them.
0: The only thing that gives me pause, and, I, and for the most part, I'm right there with you in terms of – Look, A.J. Green, it wasn't what he was, you know, had been several years ago anyway, and now is obviously departed uh, from the team. It was also a position of need, and it. you said he's a blue-chip prospect. The, uh, the only thing that gives me pause is this. The top receivers taken in drafts seem to get very variable results. Some of the top 10 guys seem like they totally flame out and, and others uh, – Ascend to great heights, and I can't. And for for the life of me, having seen all of these in guys in college, I can't figure out why it is that some of these guys take off and do so well, while the opposite end of the spectrum is is so far in the other direction.
1: Yeah, so that that one's interesting. To me, Chase was so good that he was up to the Amari Cooper, Sammy Watkins, you know, even AJ. Going back to AJ Green, that level of wide receiver prospect where. Those guys are a little different than your Corey Davis's, who went top five. Um, I'm trying to think of who else went super high in the draft. I mean, Corey Coleman, obviously, he was 15th, but got the other guys who go super high in the draft. Where it's like his physical profiles, on-field production, it, it was all there. That it's like if he fails, it's going to be injury, like what it was with Watkins, or, or something else that really uh, hampers him. So from that perspective. Like, I don't think this, this, the assured the safety of Sewell versus chase was all that different in how good a player you're going to be getting.
0: In, I at face value, I, I get that. It, it, chase was unbelievable in, in his time with Burrow and that I mean, all of the receivers were, were unbelievable really. And so it's hard to argue with the uh, the combination of the athletic profile, the production, all of that on his side. It's just I've seen that story before a couple times where I thought, hey, this is a great pick. And then ultimately it didn't work out. And you look at the Bengals, they took John Ross and some other guys that haven't always panned out for them as well. So. They they took an interesting approach with, with the offensive line, I would say, in terms of adding some guys, but not necessarily, I would say, going all in on addressing the problem.
1: Yeah, I think that is now the most worrisome thing. It's like your O-line, you know, it, like the Browns had a bad O-line in 2019. And they came into 2020 and it was fixed. Like you knew it was going to be good. Uh, the Bengals had a bad O-line. They come into 2021 and it's like, it's better. Um we don't know that's fixed. Like, we, we're we not sure yet. Uh, it, it's obviously going to be better, like I said, but there is still a lot of variables, and like they are thin to where any injury at tackle, especially, is their DOA. Like, it's going to be a battle line once again. So, like I said, in a vacuum, if I were just choosing between elite wide receiver prospect and elite tackle prospect, I would have gone Sewell. But I, I, I think there were too many variables, and, and the situation was different than just you had to account for it was different than just a vacuum you, you had to account for the fact that these were college teammates that like you know you've seen them like it, it's going to be good like you don't have to worry about that if the guy played it you know if chase played at alabama i, I think they go penesul like I, I do i think that was a massive factor in their decision
0: you can't replicate that chemistry that you already see on the field, right? You know that that's a known variable in a draft where there were so many unknown Mm -hmm. variables. And so you you can't fault the Bengals for that. So to wrap things up here, Mike, you take the draft, uh, especially, and that also, you know, factoring in some of the, the free agent moves, how do you see the AFC North, stacking up in, in terms of what's happened this off season and now looking forward to 2021, who got, who got uh, better, who got worse and how do you see the division shaping up overall?
1: I mean, Brown's obviously got better now that's on paper, like, but the defense is, should be one of the best in the NFL. I, I would be floored if it's not a top five defense next year. It's just, that's the kind of talent they have outside of them. I think the Bengals, got better and they'll get better obviously with Joe Burrow returning, but it wasn't to my opinion to the degree the Brown the degree the Browns did. I think the Steelers really kicked the can. I, I don't see how any sort of position group where they could have got where they did get better besides running back. And even then it's like that's not the position group I want to be necessarily getting better at It's one of the least valuable like I said. Uh and, and the Ravens, another team that I think kind of just kicked the can. I don't think they got too much worse Uh, anywhere, I I do think the receiving core is going to be better, but that's really about it. So I think it really is the Browns' division to be had then, if just purely from what they did this offseason. It was kind of they got better, everyone else status quo. But the problem was it was such a good division prior that that doesn't necessarily mean there are shoe-ins to win it.
0: So right now, if the season started today, you feel stronger about the Browns winning than, than, say, the Ravens?
1: Yeah, I would pick. The, I mean, I pick the Browns to win the North. I, I feel like they're the most complete team. They have, you know, if Baker shows any sort of progression like he did down the stretch last year and continues that in twenty twenty one, I mean, he's got top ten quarterback in the NFL also, and that's a big, obviously piece of the puzzle. It really kind of falls on his shoulders at this point. But if he is that guy we saw down the stretch, yeah, this should be the favorites in the SC North.
0: Well, that is music to my ears and hopefully to all Browns fans ears out there listening as well. Mike, I appreciate you coming on and giving us so much of your time today. It was great to have you on not only to talk about the Browns and the A plus grade that you guys have handed out to us for the second year in a row, but also to get your perspective on those other AFC North teams that we're just not following quite as closely.
1: For sure, man. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, Browns fans, and that will do it for this episode of The Rebuild. Plenty more of content to come as we get into training camp battles, figuring out that final 53-man roster, and any other news that might come up with this team along the way. But until next time, Browns fans, just two words for you. Go Browns!